0: Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Paul, Lori Calvacina is here. We had so much going on in the previous hours this morning that it's nice just to get cozy with Lori here in radio, to really get focused on the plan forward. Let's review. Q4, train wreck, double digit first half. What's the Calvicina now what?
1: I think we're going to be range bound through the end of the year. And my guess is that the next move is lower. I think we're going to have a tough reporting season. I don't anticipate a recession heating up this year. I don't think we're going to slip into one next year. but I And so I do think you'll get a rebound towards right. the end of the year. Um, and, you know, look, if we're wrong about earnings season and it comes in a little bit better than expected, I do think we've got valuation problems. I think we've got crowding problems. And I think we're still confronted with slowing growth mm-hmm. next year. The investors I yeah. speak with are very bearish. I think they're inclined to take profits if given the opportunity. So either way, right. I think we're going to get a pullback and, before the end of the year. And,
0: and, Paul, what's so important here, what's the guy's name, John, who, Paul? <laughs> yeah, exactly. What's his name?
2: I'm not sure. Okay, I, I, I can't I,
0: remember. This guy named John talked up the, Blue, the Bank of America... Long-only buy-side survey. It was defensive. I've heard that hedge funds are defensive. What's the bet on the street now? Are they defensive or not?
1: So I think there's a, a disconnect between what's in people's heads and what's in people's portfolios. And when you get inside inside people's heads, they say, "Look, we're late cycle. Everything's slowing. Business yeah. confidence was great. It's you know not falling off a cliff, but we think things are slowing." But when you look at what people own, you know they're they're still heavily into cyclicals. Um, as I talk to people about getting to de- defensive. They're like, oh, the utilities are too expensive. The staples are too fundamentally challenged. I can't touch REITs. But they have this itch to get defensive. They just don't know how. So I think there's kind of a, a war going on with what they want to do in their portfolios. But their inclination is to get more defensive.
2: So Lori, one of the areas that has been underperforming have been small caps. I know people have been, Asking about is there some value uh, opportunities in small caps? Why have the small cap stocks been underperforming and and what should investors be doing there?
1: So, look, I think the small caps have been underperforming for two very good reasons. They've deserved the underperformance that they've gotten. Um, First, I think they've been having a tough time managing margin pressures, and that's everything from labor costs to the tariff related input costs. Um, And, you know, we've seen this. The the revenue expectations have been fine. The earnings expectations didn't go up in the first half of the year the way the large caps did. Um, and, And we think. that's just because small caps they just don't have as much bargaining power with their suppliers with their with their employee bases and they just can't manage through quite as well I think the second thing we've noticed is that the small large trade is just starting to act like a very cyclical trade again so as US economic surprises have deteriorated small caps have lagged as you've seen a lot of these economic indicators roll over and start to slow small caps have lagged the small caps are telling you that people are concerned about the economy
2: so, you know another area that I think people would like to have some maybe more exposure, but they're just concerned about the political overhang. The regulatory overhang is healthcare care. Are there any areas within healthcare care, you think? Your clients should be uh, looking.
1: So I would say not specific areas. Um, you know what we noticed in April when Bernie Sanders was first starting to make some some gains on Biden and the polling data, you had like a one-week earthquake in healthcare stocks. If you looked at the different industries, everything went down pretty similarly. Yeah. So there was really no place to hide, and the ETF data turned really negative. The way we're approaching healthcare is we're staying neutral, and I would say you know within that neutral, it feels like a okay. negative bias. Um, we think they're cheap. The political risk is enormous. I think that was. Confirmed over the past two nights, this issue was uh, front and center. It is not going to go away. Um, the only thing that really looks cheap, though, is the providers and services, which is right at the epicenter of the policy debate that's heating up.
0: Right. Okay. Well, if we take into Paul's good question, we had the merger, uh, uh, abvi or whatever. Okay. You got a company like Abbott Labs. They're doing physical stuff in healthcare things, and then they got the whole pharma drugo kind of thing. Which area is is a more intelligent place to be for five years out.
1: Look, I would say, if you look at the equipment and services side of yeah, the okay, equation, well said. I, yeah. I, I can't, you know, I can't get bullish there. I mean, that's where we see the most expensive valuations within healthcare. It's got, avail,
0: but it's a, this is critical. Yeah. It's, a, it's not that it's a bad industry. It's just completely it's, priced. It's
1: that everybody's there. Okay. And when we look at long-only positioning data, large cap growth investors are already heavily overweight that part of the market. So I'm just not sure who the incremental buyer is.
2: So, Laurie, do you, when you go around the country talking to clients, are, are you hearing anybody saying, you know, we're up 16% on the S&P, I'm just taking my, you know, baseballs and going home?
1: You know, most of the clients I talk to can't do that. Frankly, they're just not allowed to run that much cash in their portfolios. What they are trying to do is figure out where to go next. And I would say what what I'm hearing from some clients is there's like, look, you know, we are not inclined to take big sector bets anyway. We're probably less inclined to do that. We're looking for the best opportunities within industries, within sectors. You know, looking for things that have been de-risked from some of the big tensions that we've had. You know, whether it's trade or the the broader slowdown in corporate confidence. Um, I, I think that a lot of people that are struggling with what to do they realize that a lot of their winners um, they've been in them a long time they're expensive they're sort of hanging on to a lot of them now software stocks for example uh, simply because they don't feel like they have a lot of better alternatives right now
0: I mean I I, I look at it all in all Lori and and I I just within range-bound Where's the opportunity? Which sectors the opportunity?
1: So in terms of what we like, you know, we're still overweight on financials and that's been a tough call. Um but we do think the market is starting to get more interest in dividends and so I think financials really stands out on that front. Financials are all still also still buying back their shares pretty aggressively. And we think the banks have generally been de-risked, so we don't expect big blow-ups at the end of the cycle like we got last time. Um, I still like consumer staple stocks as a way to get defensive. They're not cheap on PE, but they look really undervalued yeah. versus the market on cash flow. They had a good earnings season last time. I know they've struggled a little bit out of the gate here. Um, but we do think they've spent the last year plus you know, getting their act together on pricing and they're executing now. They've been doing a very good right. job of getting costs down. And they are so hated, so under-owned, so out of favor, um, we think they're still upside there.
0: Lori Calvacina, thank you so much. RBC Capital Markets as we get ready for the third quarter Q3, they call it in the street. Q3. That's right. 2019. <laughs> Let's get right to it with Ambassador Robert Hormats. He joins us from Kissinger Associates. We should have a two-hour conversation uh, with him this morning, but I I guess instead it'll be far too short. Ambassador, thank you so much for joining us.
3: Very nice to be with you.
0: An open question. uh, The president in Japan, a second trip in recent uh, weeks as well. What is the best American outcome out of this G20 summit?
3: Well, the best outcome would be to be able to reach agreement on many of these so-called structural issues between the U.S. and China. Intellectual property protection would be one, trade secrets protections, another question of uh, levels of Chinese support for state enterprises. But that is very unlikely to happen. I don't think enough preparation has been done to enable that to occur. So after that, the best option is to at least have a truce, that enables the negotiators to get back to their conversations and and at least try to deal with them, recognizing that you can't resolve all these issues in one negotiation, and so you need to resolve some and then have a process an ongoing yeah. process for dealing with others over a sustained period of time. You sound
0: like you work for Barack Obama, and not Donald Trump. With that, there was a photo op today. I wanna to go to the photo op yesterday at the Australian meeting, which shows a divide in trade within the administration. Secretary Ross, Secretary Mnuchin, Lawrence Kudlow not there, down at the other end of the table, Peter Navarro as well. Can you get anything done in foreign policy with administration advisors that divided?
3: Well, part of the problem in the past, there have been administrations that have divisions, but the problem uh, that this administration tends to have is it creates an uncertainty around where it is at any given point. And it's very hard for other countries to negotiate with the United States if they are asked to put their best offer on the table, they make a deal, and then a little bit later, in a matter of weeks or months, the U.S. comes back and said, oh, we, we know we made a deal with you, but we want more. And therefore, it's very hard when you're not consistent mm-hmm. to be a, a, a trading partner that is going to be able to make good deals because people may not no. have confidence that she'll
0: adhere to the deal. Ambassador, let me bring in my colleague Paul Sweeney in Nashville today. Paul. Thanks,
2: Tom. Uh, Ambassador, I was wondering if you could put us into the shoes of President Xi and the Chinese delegation here in Osaka. What do you think China really wants to achieve
3: here? I do think the Chinese would like to have some kind of stability in their economic relationship with the United States, which means they're probably willing to make some concessions. But I emphasize the word some. I don't think that the U.S. is likely to get, uh, or the Chinese are likely to give, everything that uh, Washington wants at this point, and they're not going to make major concessions which undermine what they consider their core interests, which is that the government will continue to support state enterprises. The government of China wants China to be a major competitive power in new technologies. Uh, China has a very different system of protecting information Uh, from that of the United States. So the Chinese are willing to make some concessions to cool things down, but they're not willing to give everything and uh, engage in what they would consider domestically right. and be criticized for which would be lopsided uh, deals uh, for the United St- that in favor of the United States and are seen by them to be uh, making concessions greater than right. than they can to meet their core interests
0: I've got one t- time for one final question and I have to go back to your important book of, I'm going to say 10 12 years ago on the debt and the deficit In our extension abroad. Boy, is it much worse now. How are we gonna extend abroad with the growing debt, the growing deficit that we see forward?
3: Well, the problem is that people have paid so little attention to that on both sides of the aisle, uh, largely because interest rates are relatively low, and we could actually technically continue to borrow a lot of money uh, because rates are low, but the problem is if rates do go up, and at some point they're likely to, then you have to pay the piper. And the other question is, how do you use the money? And I think this is really what's troublesome to me. If you're really worried about China as a competitive power, then it seems to me you're doing, you should be doing what we did in the 1950s after Sputnik, which means invest a lot more in education, invest a lot more in the national labs and research and development. Put a lot more into stem cell research. Oh, now we got anti-science uh, and, and strengthen um, and strengthen. Oh, come our on, infras- Bob. we've
0: got we've got virtually anti-science right now.
3: Well, that's the problem. We're 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 we're, we're worried about a competitive country like China uh, accelerating R and D and accelerating its competitive strengths in a whole range of yeah. new technologies. On the other and and we're trying to do things on the trade front. What we should be doing. In parallel, at least, is looking at what we need to do on strengthening okay. infrastructure, education, R&D, to strengthen our own competitive capability. That's the way oh. you really compete in this world, strengthen your own competitive capability. And we're really barely focusing on that. Too Companies of, are, but the government doesn't seem to It's be.
0: radio. we got to go to break. Bob hormans thank you so much. Too short a visit uh, today. Robert hormans is with Kissinger Associates, a former undersecretary of state uh, for economic might. I, I just made that myself, but that's what it felt like economic. My... There is a definitive essay this morning on Sir Jonathan. He is, of course, exquisite in art and design out of Newcastle, uh, bringing a Bauhaus tradition uh, into all he's done at Apple, and that essay must be Shira overday of Bloomberg Opinion. Shira, just what a tour de force! Did you know he was resigning? Oh, did absolutely you, did you not. You have I don't this, think anyone knew. Did you have this essay in the can? Not, no. He is Sir Jonathan, and the the impact here is immense, but as you partition beautifully in the essay, He's a hardware guy. Is what this really about is Spotify's cleaning Apple Music's clock? Is that, and is is an example of what's really going on here?
4: Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I, I wouldn't put this directly on Spotify, but I think it is true that if you look at what's happening now in technology, now in the future of technology, it's about software. It's not about these sort of messianic cults of hardware designers yeah. who, as we heard in the, o- those opening videos, right, obsess over, you know, the curve uh, of every smartphone angle and the, the lack of vents. Um, that kind of design aesthetic taste is still important, but hardware is just getting less important to the future of technology right. in general. And so that means people like Johnny Ive are a little bit less relevant. Is
0: there a Johnny Ive of software at Apple?
4: that's an interesting question i mean because i in, just
0: read the 21 best pixar movies and the, the 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 wonder of pixar is there's three or four guys with a different ethos each
4: yeah that, that I, I think that's a good question uh, you know certainly look johnny ive was the johnny ive of software at apple he was responsible for software in the last few years as well software design um and they, they obviously have a deeper bench of folks who are working on on software, but no, I don't think there is a sort of software guru at Apple, which I think is telling both about Apple the company and about the direction of the industry and in the software focused way. It's really the nerds that are dictating the future <laughs> of, of technology now.
2: So, Shira, in your column, you note that this is a you know a really interesting time for Apple. It's a pivotal time as you know the dependence on the iPhone begins to wane. So, I mean, it just kind of senses that, um, you know, is this kind of suggesting that services for Apple really will be the area of focus going forward?
4: Well, it is in the near term. Look, I think the, the fundamental issue for Apple is that there is no next big thing. And maybe there can never be a next big thing as big as the iPhone, right? So you have this issue now where, you know, Apple as a company is generating more than half of its direct revenue and significantly more of its indirect revenue from that one singular product that Johnny Ive and Steve Jobs and others were responsible for making. And look, the the focus on, uh, Apple's focus now on services, on things like Apple Music, on the Apple TV Plus service that's coming, on video games, that is all ancillary. It, it is basically um, kind of orbiting moons around the iPhone. And if you look at where the future of technology is going, it's in areas where Apple has no presence and no heritage, right? Artificial intelligence, cloud computing, the internet of things, autonomous driving. Apple is in those areas, of course, but it's far from a leader in any of them. And that's going to determine who wins and loses in the future.
0: I, I, I look sure at the design of Apple. I saw Samsung at uh, last night Uh, One of our great staff took some photos in Washington with a Samsung phone. I was dazzled as well. As a general statement, everybody I see has Johnny Ive in their hands. I I mean, as a, you know, and then the stock's done what it's done and we don't need to turn this into a financial exercise as well. Except I want to go back to software. It's almost as if Apple's botched the software game. Is that too harsh of me to say?
4: No, I think that's completely fair. I think um, what I said... Uh, yesterday was, do you want the company that makes um, iTunes, right, which is basically a much maligned uh, software that's so bad that even one of Apple's executives made fun of it on stage earlier this month. Do you want that company to make your driverless car? And I think that's the issue, is that this is a company whose um, software expertise is not great you know you and i were
0: talking before we came back about jeffrey fowler's landmark work at the washington post on privacy and google chrome and all that in his brilliant articles
4: safari's unmentioned just as an example did they know that in cupertino <laughs> Well, I think Safari suffers a little bit from the same problem that other um, Apple technologies suffer from, which is it's designed to work best with Apple hardware. Exactly. And Apple hardware is always going to be a minority of the ways that people interact with technology now, right? You're, you're talking about a world in which Android phones are the primary way that um, billions of people around the world are getting online, and Safari is absent there. So that, that's really the problem for Apple. So, Shira, is there
2: any replacement for a Johnny Ive at Apple?
4: There isn't. Um, Obviously, (laughs) they they filled the gap. They they elevated some um, designers who have worked for Johnny Ive for a long time to fill his role. Notably, uh, those designers will report to the chief operating officer at Apple rather than to the chief executive officer, as Johnny Ive did, which shows you something about... um, you know, obviously the prominence of, of Johnny Ive, but also the, the more, I guess, banal role for hardware going forward. No, I don't think there is somebody who can replace Johnny Ive. Obviously, Apple will need to have a kind of common design aesthetic across its products. That's not going to change. But there is no single kind of messianic yeah. cult of the leader there.
0: Thanks for the briefing. I'm going to get day's piece out on uh, social as I can. It is a spectacular piece. something and I love to say this, Sir Jonathan's uh, career at Apple, and he's going to still consult the Apple. Come on.
4: Yes, he is. <laughs> although it, it, it seemed like kind of a graceful way to exit, rather than a uh, real. Really doing that with me too, day <laughs> Thank
0: you uh, so much. As always, on uh, technology, as uh, is, is a greater whole. A giant has entered the studio in New York. If you are a songwriter in this nation and part of ASCAP or BMI or CSAC, and if you are ever so lucky as to make it and make it big, you will be on a first name basis with Lawrence Ferrari. He is at New York University and he is the definitive expert on copyright in the nation. You may not know the name, but you know in any given case involving Tom Petty, James Page of Led Zeppelin, young Katy Perry, they all end up retaining uh, Dr. Ferreira is somebody goes after their success. And we are honored that you would join us today, uh, Lawrence Ferrara. We have copyright, and we all understand somebody's going to steal a song. It seems in the modern age, it's come down to an eight-second riff, a chord change. Uh, 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 a syncopation across three measures, or even the melody. How did we get to such acuity of studying how of studying how we steal a song?
5: The acuity is a function of the fact that musicologists, for example, have to dissect the music that's at issue. Someone makes a claim, uh, for example, that a melody has been copied. The uh, The key is to dissect it and analyze it within the context of the whole and to provide an opinion as to the substantiality uh, of, that, uh, of that expression. Who's winning right
0: now? Just as a general statement, case after case, Who's winning right now? The established to star where they're going after the money or the person that says, my song was th- stolen?
5: Oh, it's, a, it's really on a case-by-case basis. Really? I don't think there's You're going to that? Yeah, that's right. I don't think there's any particular trend. Uh, take a look at the Led Zeppelin trial.
0: This is Jimmy Page, Stairway to Heaven, A minor riff. And Spirit, Magical Band of five or six years ahead of time, Spirit says they stole that riff from Taurus, right?
5: That's correct.
0: And who, who, is, it, is the case been decided?
5: Yes, uh, I was uh, the music expert on behalf of Jimmy Page, Robert right. Plant uh, at Warner Music, Warner Chapel Music. Uh, and that was a few years ago and the jury found on behalf of Led Zeppelin and co-defendants. What did
0: you learn from that jury in their decision? How did they come to it? If I go up Fifth Avenue right now to the Metropolitan Museum of Art, there's the Magisterial Guitar Show and buried there, folks among all these fancy, you know, Keith Richards, Les Paul, and uh, Jeff Beck's Esquire and Springsteen's Esquire. There's a lousy crap acoustic guitar that Jimmy Page wrote all these songs on. Sitting there with that guitar, he's got 87 inspirational ideas in his head, and he stole it from somebody? Is that what this comes down to?
5: Well, that would be the charge. The uh, You asked about the jury. The jury found that, in fact, to the extent there are similarities, those similarities represent expression, as you call it, uh, uh, a descending line progression. In fact, in jazz theory books, it's called a descending line progression cliche uh,
0: and and that's because you're calling a- all the songs i wrote over the year a cliche <laughs> no it's, it's come on it's a minor six aeolian breakdown out of the key of c that's right i get that but we've gotten into this madness that anybody can go after anybody i mean sam smith was a total class act they had a tom petty issue the late great tom petty and didn't they all get together and have beers and say okay let's fix this they did yes why can't that happen more often it does happen often. Okay, see, Paul. The problem with this is Dr. Ferrara doesn't know he's on radio. <laughs> and he's asking questions like he's in—he's answering questions like he's in court. Paul, jump in here.
5: It's interesting. I mean, uh, Dr. Ferrara. I mean, how widespread is this? In my experience, claims uh, with respect to copyright infringement in music uh, have uh, greatly increased uh, over the last several years. I've been doing this for about a quarter of a century. Uh, And so, uh, over the last several years, there's no question that there's a digital.
0: Is it because of all the looping and the digital and the rest of it?
5: That's part of it. Uh, I I think uh, through social media and so forth,
0: I want to back up to first principle. What's a song worth? I mean, what are they suing over? I mean, Stairway to Heaven is iconic, etc. What's the total alt-in value of the copyright of a given song? Well,
5: not every note uh, or even passage in any work that is under copyright protection is necessarily protected. Uh, There, for example, there can be uh, portions like the descending uh, chromatic scale that you mentioned uh, in that happens to be both in Taurus by Spirit uh, and uh, in It's in Beethoven
0: I mean, Jimmy stole it from, you know, Beethoven got it from Handel, et cetera, et cetera. Or Haydn, excuse me.
5: Yeah, that's right. It, in fact, it goes back to the 17th century opera composers in Venice and a very famous opera by uh, an English composer, Henry Purcell, uh, in an opera that premiered in 1689 with the same progression.
0: What is a song worth today? I, mean, I think our audience doesn't understand it. When Katy Perry drops into the Super Bowl and sings whatever the hit is, dark whatever it is, what is a song worth Worth today. What what's the the dollar value? Oh, I, of I, a hit single.
5: I am not an economics expert. I could not answer that. That's okay. That, you're on
0: you're... radio. You can be an expert without <laughs> no. being, but but I mean, are they worth like $20 million or $200 million? What are you guys fighting about in court? Well, I'm How much money?
5: I'm engaged in the musicological aspects uh, of of two Two songs that are an issue, uh, as far as the the monetary values, yeah. uh, that that's not part of my belly whack.
0: I mean, Paul, you want to step in here, I man? Paul, I heard you singing <laughs> "Landslide" the other day by, you know, Stevie Nicks. I thought it was a great cover.
2: Exactly. Well, yeah, of course. But you know, it's interesting. Uh, you know, the real question I think for you know a lot of people is, you know, where and when does the creative process begin and and, and end? And i was just wondering how the courts kind of looked at that over the over the years. Um, how difficult is it to prove that? Uh, you
5: know, one artist um,
2: perhaps stole some or part of another artist's song.
5: It could be a challenge, uh, and ultimately you, you have to rely on the, in in my case, the objective musicological evidence as to whether the similarities suggest copying, uh, and then ultimately whether the, that copying is substantial. The ultimate judge, though, uh, is the jury or the judge uh, who will decide whether they believe that copying has it, taken place. It just place. comes
0: down to a subjective it, belief.
5: That's right. Uh, it, uh, it, it's called the intrinsic analysis in the, in the Ninth Circuit, which is understandably let me, let me subjective. Give you intri-
0: Stop. Let me give you intrinsic analysis here. I have the clearest memory. I had a coarse Light in my hand on a 90-degree day in Boulder, Colorado, in a frat house, and I learned that George Harrison was being sued over my sweet Lord. And I'm like, you got to be kidding me. And yet that happens, right? It
5: does. Uh, so George Harrison, of course, and that's back uh, about 1980, uh, had a bench trial. Uh, and, uh, and so the judge's decision, right. uh, who, by the way, was uh, also an opera composer, so a musician, that judge, uh, found on behalf uh, of, uh, of the plaintiff.
0: I'm still speechless over that. Thank you so much for coming in. Lawrence Ferrer with us, with New York University, folks. He is not, I I gotta be careful here. He's not A, he's the person you call. You know, think about your kids. They get a hit single, they make a lot of money, you're guaranteed somebody's going to call up and go after it. And Lawrence Ferreira is truly on a musicology basis, on the notes, on the chords, the expert on this. He is professor of music and emeritus uh, uh, professor at New York University. And of course, a a lot of work as well with the Steinhardt music and performing arts uh, as well. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide. I'm Bloomberg Radio.